All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. The Mars Magazine Podcast is back. This is Adario Strange here with... Big Song. And this week, there is, there's almost too much to talk about. We're going to talk about Elon Musk and his SpaceX plans for Mars, which made huge news this week. But first, we're going to talk about a couple of things that popped up in the news before that. Um, first, Snapchat, uh, now named Snap Inc., and they've come out with a new wearable device called Spectacles. If you can imagine 80s Wayfarer sunglasses with two small cameras on the, the hinges, that's basically what the Spectacle looks like. And they cost about $130. Um, they can record videos in these 10-second increments. And what it'll do is once you've record, recorded these videos, it'll automatically sync to your phone and upload it onto your Snapchat account. It's basically kind of a mix between Google Glass and GoPro all in one fashionable little sunglassy tidbit accessory. Now, are we sure it's two cameras or just one? Because I know there's one side has like a light up LED and like a button for you to push to take the 10, sne 10 second snap. But are there, is it one camera or two? Oh, you know what? You've absolutely got it right. I assumed that they were two cameras, but I believe you're right in that one of them is an LED that kind of, it acts kind of like a battery indicator and an indicator to, to let you know that it's recording at, at that given time. In that respect, that I think is like the big difference between this and something like Google Glass, which faced a lot of resistance from people who uh, began to call people glass holes for wearing these kind of Borg-like eyewear devices that allowed you to walk around and record people, uh, record video of people, take pictures of people, uh, access the internet, access apps. Um, but, you know, you could walk around and it wasn't really clear whether or not you were recording someone. Whereas this, in this case, you actually have uh, an indicator light that shows, okay, look, I'm recording now and it only lasts for 10 seconds. I'm sure someone will come up like very quickly with a hack that, you know, mm -hmm. will allow it to record for longer than that. But uh, the light, you know, you have an indicator light. This looks really cool. I'm kind of excited that a software app company is doing hardware because I do think a lot of the future of innovation in tech has to do with wearables. The more and more I think about Spectacles, I don't know if we said that's the name, Spectacles, Spectacles.com. That's where you can check out more information about it. The biggest market that Snapchat seems to cater to are uh, millennials, and what's what's the the generation below millennials, like teens? Um, they're they don't have an official name yet. Uh, okay, Crumb Snatchers. Uh, Crumb Snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, the, the 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 teens. We'll just say teens. Uh, the biggest thing that well, that's their target market, but. They seem to have left out something, which is selfies. You can't take selfies with these things. Unless I'm missing something, when you're wearing the spectacles, you're basically recording outside of yourself. And that's the key, I guess, benefit of having the smartphone is you can, like, extend it, you know, with your arm, lean into your friend, and boom, take a selfie with you and your friend, you and a celebrity, you and someone who you just met or whatever. You can't really do that with spectacles unless I'm, there's something I'm missing. It seems basically physically impossible to take a selfie. The promotional video that they had to launch with spectacles shows people skateboarding, you know, partying. And there's a lot of kind of GoPro style footage that kind of shows you like this is how you might be able to use spectacles. But I think the big 
deficiency is the lack of selfies. That's kind of Snapchat's big calling card. There's two types of snaps that you might get in Snapchat, and one of them is very much the the selfie with the selfie filters. I think we're all familiar with that and the controversies they can cause. But the other type of way that people use it, and I see it more and more, is the GoPro type way of using it, you taking these short videos of your friends. So I'm thinking that they are purposely aware that the selfie aspect is kind of cut out of it, and they're trying to trump up the other aspect of it more. Uh, especially since, you know, this is a $130 accessory. So compared to Google Glass, I don't know off the top of my head how much Google Glass costs. That was 1500 I repeat, $1,500 is how much they cost. So Google this Glass. is like less than 10% of what a Google Glass would cost you. Uh, even though I think it's missing on the selfie action, I think there are a bunch of people who will definitely kind of go, oh, this is a really cool accessory. It's fashionable. It doesn't it doesn't really look like a Google Glass cyborg uh, implement on your face. It looks like any regular old kind of retro, kind of chic uh, sunglass that, you know, hipsters would wear. So from that standpoint, I think it's very simple to use. The, the functionality is limited. And the cost is kind of affordable for a millennial with a job. So <laughs> I think all in all, it has the potential to do well, especially since it kind of plays into that Warby part vibe. Definite Warby Parker vibes based on the frame design. I like the design. I like that they're fun. The colors are fun. Yeah, I, this this looks like a good bet. But here's the thing. The, the very fact that there is, you know, no ability to take selfies, the price point is so low, my spidey sense is tingling. I believe this is just their entryway into hardware. I believe this is, you know, again, they changed their name from Snapchat to Snap Inc. I believe this is their entryway into smartphones. You know, this is kind of like their Trojan horse. You know, you don't need this Android or this Apple phone. And that's the other thing. I mean, when you think about it, it might sound like, well, what do you mean? Well, how are they going to make smartphones? Well, think about something. iOS 10, Apple's iOS 10 just came out. And look at messages. I mean, messages basically tried to rip off like half of the features of Snapchat. I mean, everything from the drawings to the ephemerality of some of the messages. They have like this thing called, uh, I think it's Invisible Ink, it's called. I mean, basically the new version of messages looks a lot like Snapchat. And then when you look at Facebook, Facebook is also like basically copying a lot of Snapchat features. And we all know that Facebook is very interested in trying to find its way into the mobile hardware sector They've denied it repeatedly over the years, but it's clear to everyone that that's where the money is, the software and the hardware in mobile. And so I think this is kind of like a cheap test the waters, dip your toe in in the pool move at $130, super smart to make it that cheap. Because, again, I think with the problem with Google Glass, well, not the problem, one of the many problems with Google Glass is that it was experimental and I think they priced it at 1500 to kind of make it seem like this really rarefied premium device. And you had to be – it was hard to even have the opportunity to buy it. But, you know, if they had made it either free or really cheap, let's say, you know, 130 bucks, Google Glass, I think it would have gone a lot farther. And Google, again, is not known as a premium device maker. 
It's, you know, they're, they're primarily in software. They're, and even their software, Android, you know, a lot of Android devices are known to be more affordable than things like, let's say, you know, the Apple iPhone. And so Snap Inc. making this play at $130 with these, you know, fun glasses that are at $130, they're almost disposable, like for a lot of people who are kind of, you know, in the, I guess, celebrity class and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, upper middle class, $130 is like, that's almost, that's, that's really a great price point. I think this is really, really smart, but I do think that this is just a stealth move to test the waters as they move into the smartphone space. Do we know when it's launching? They have not announced when it's launching, mm-hmm. but um, when these things do hit, I think it's going to be hard not you know, to give them a try. Uh, moving on, we want to talk about Star Trek. This is, again, uh, as we've mentioned numerous times on the pod, the 50th anniversary of the Star Trek franchise. And something very strange happened this past week. A large number of writers, producers, and actors from various iterations of the Star Trek franchise came together as one unit to rebuke the presidency of Donald Trump. I think this is like unprecedented. Potential presidency of Donald Trump. Well, yeah, sorry. There yet. Yeah, yeah. The potential presidency of Donald Trump. I think this is like unprecedented. I've never seen anything like this. They basically all signed their, not all, many of the people involved in Star Trek uh, signed their names to an open letter that was posted on Facebook. And I'll just read a brief part of it. It says, Star Trek has always offered a positive vision of the future, a vision of hope and optimism, and more importantly, a vision of inclusion, where people of all races are accorded equal respect and dignity, where individual beliefs and lifestyles are respected so long as they pose no threat to others. We cannot turn our backs on what is happening in the upcoming election. Never has there been a presidential candidate who stands in such complete opposition to the ideals of the Star Trek universe as Donald Trump. His election would take this country backwards, perhaps disastrously. We need to elect a president who will move this country forward into the kind of future we all dream of, where personal preferences, where personal differences are understood and accepted, where science overrules superstition, where people work together instead of against each other. And it goes on, but that's kind of like the meat of the message. And just to give you an idea of some of the people, I mean, this is... These aren't like extras or, you know, grip, mm. key grips. This is like the big people. J.J. Abrams signed it. Scott Bakula, one of the captains. Uh, Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, uh, LeVar Burton, uh, John Cho, Jonathan Frakes, uh, you know, number one. Yeah, uh, Walter Koenig, that's Chekhov, Alex Kurtzman, Justin Lin, uh, the new Sulu, Gates McFadden, Ronald B. Moore. Kate Mulgrew, one of the captains, Adam Nimoy, uh, Susan Nimoy uh, from the Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Spock family, Simon Pegg, uh, the new Scotty, Robert Picardo, who was the doctor, the holographic doctor in uh, one of the series, uh, Chris Pine, one of the captains, Zachary Quinto, the new Spock, Rod Roddenberry, the son of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, Zoe Zaldana, uh, the new Uhura, Brent Spiner, Data, George Takei, who is Sulu, Carl Urban, the doc, the new doctor, Will Wheaton. Uh, I mean, these are big names. These are like the cream of the crop. The, the one notable person that's not on here is Captain Kirk, William Shatner. Ooh, 
Yeah, William Shatner is not on the list. However, however, I guess we can give him a pass because he's Canadian. So, <laughs> I mean, this is unprecedented. I just love that they're kind of taking the whole sci-fi like stamp because you know Star Trek is very much about a utopian world about you know where we can go positively in in terms of the future. I I've always found that science fiction, you know, it can be one of two potential futures for humanity. We can either go into a horribly dystopian future where we've just taken all the potential and the future and all the optimism that technology can bring and we've totally messed it up and you know, we are living in a dystopia, or we can have a Star Trek type future where, you know, we bring out the best in each other and we work past our differences towards like a positive goal. So it kind of makes sense that if, you know, if you love Star Trek and if you're a creator of Star Trek and you want to like kind of talk to the fans and, you know, just make a statement about like where we're going in the future, especially since 2016 is such a momentous and historic election. Um, it makes sense that this particular franchise out of all sci-fi franchises would, would come out and say like, you know, if you want a Star Trek type future to happen, you know, maybe don't vote for the orange chupacabra. Easy, 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 easy. (laughs) Well, I mean, the, uh, what is fascinating to me about this is again, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which means in 50 years, This is the first time this has happened. 50 years of presidents have passed, have come and gone. And Star Trek has never done anything like this. You know, as far as I know, no. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't know that any uh, science fiction franchise has ever come together and rebuked a major political candidate. And so it it got me to thinking, like, this is really – you know, the candidacy of Trump, and you know, on the pod, on this pod, we generally try to stick to sci-fi and technology and science, but I guess politics are unavoidable right now, and, and Star Trek has proven that. This election ap- appears to really be taking people into different directions um, along the same lines, and not really sci-fi, but in the tech world. Um, there was another story that came out in the last week where the founder of Oculus, Palmer Lucky, or at least the Daily Beast reported that he supported a group that was devoted to spreading memes, anti-Hillary Clinton memes. And the idea is that he is like, I guess, some sort of supporter of Trump or at least anti-Hillary. There have been, you know, other comments about, you know, his personal associations. And what this has resulted in is now you now have a lot of developers who have now sworn off developing for the Oculus platform uh, simply because of what they believe are Palmer Lucky's views. Now, to be clear, he has Palmer Lucky has posted on Facebook a statement denying that he is part of any kind of political action. Actually, I'll just read um, what he posted on September 23rd. Uh, this is Palmer Lucky on Facebook. I am deeply sorry that my actions are negatively impacting the perception of Oculus and its partners. The recent news stories about me do not accurately represent my views. But he doesn't really, like later down in the post, he doesn't really get into who he does or doesn't support, you know, I mean, it's 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 kind of blurry. So it kind of basically leaves it still out there that the first impression that a lot of people had, which is he's likely he may likely be a a Trump supporter and anti-Hillary, 
it, it leaves that impression out there. Well, that wording is very specific. Like he says, I regret that my actions or whatever negatively affect Oculus. Well, he says, he says, my actions were my own and do not represent Oculus. I'm sorry for the impact my act, my actions are having on the community. And that's important when he says on the community, because you know, a number, again, a number of developers have come forward saying, okay, wait, if this is, if he's supporting, you know, these kind of, what are they calling? I think they're calling it shit posting memes uh, that are anti-Hillary and uh, they're in some, in some cases sexist and racist if if he has any connection to this as a developer, I don't want to support this. This is what some developers are saying who were developing uh, virtual reality uh, apps for the Oculus Rift. And what was interesting is when the story initially came out, it was, I mean, it's not funny, but I chuckled. A number of people, like um, the first thing they said was, oh, glad I got an HTC Vive, you know, oh, HTC Vive for me, you know, so... It's interesting that like this platform, the VR platform war, which really I think largely boils down at this point to Oculus versus the HTC Vive, at least for high end VR, is now turning into a political issue. And so I take this plus Star Trek and it's like, this is really, I mean, people are, I guess people are very worried. Yeah. Cause can you imagine, like, if you just think about it, uh, Star Trek, who are they targeting with this particular platform and this kind of get out the vote type of message? Well, who cares about this? Sci-fi nerds, Trekkies. That's not, I, I don't think that small number of the population in a normal election would be enough to kind of be like, you guys need to get out the vote because this is real close. Do you know what I mean? Right. So because this is so contentious, because Trump is, you know, beyond all expectations and, you know, hopes for many people uh, succeeding well beyond his uh, what we thought his expiration date would be. I think at this point now they're just like, wow, we need to get the message out to as many potential fans as possible that we're going to do this whole 50th anniversary, you know, and it is because it's the 50th anniversary year. So there's a whole lot more Star Trek in the news. The movie just came out building on this momentum to kind of enact some sort of political activism with our, with our fiction. So it just kind of dovetails and it, I really do think it speaks to how desperate we all feel and about this future election. Well, I want to play devil's advocate. I don't want to get too deep into this, but I, this makes me think about something else. Um, this whole idea of mixing politics with our fiction, our science fiction, you know, stuff that we love. I mean, if we put this same standard, meaning, you know, you have to, I mean, this, what it seems like now, I'm not a Trump supporter. I will say that clearly. I'm not a Trump supporter, but if we make a statement that says essentially, if you support this or that candidate, uh, you are supporting views that are antithetical to this particular science fiction franchise, so on and so forth. I mean, does that now start us down a road where the writers uh, of the writer of a particular sci-fi property or the actor in a sci-fi property, if their politics don't align with yours, you're supposed to like not support that franchise? I mean, and I'll just take for an example, uh, one of your favorites, I think. Oh, no, I'm worried. H.P. Lovecraft. Ah, yes. You're a big yes. Cthulhu. Uh, you know, you I hear that out of your mouth, I think, every other week. Cthulhu, Cthulhu, Cthulhu. H.P. Lovecraft is a very well-known racist and would likely have looked at yourself and myself 
as inferior. So, and yet you seem to still enjoy his work. You support his work. You seem to kind of promote it by, you know, the whole Cthulhu thing. So I, I leave it to you. I, I put that on a hot steaming platter in front of you with a fork and I ask you, please dig in. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Well, we're here. So let's talk about it. Um, well, you know, it's really tough because there's this whole notion of um, maybe you've heard it on the internet. Um, all your faves are problematic, meaning, you know, there's no way to like every, everything that you like, there's just no way to constantly go and vet and make sure every single creator who's ever touched your project is morally and ethically pure. It's just impossible. Like if you like Woody Allen films, that's another question you have to ask yourself given his, his, you know, controversy. Um, I don't have a real good answer. Yeah, let's uh, keep it. Let's keep it to to, to Lovecraft. You muddy no, no, in the no, no. water. When it, when, it comes to, <laughs> when it comes to Lovecraft, I have no real good answer because I actually don't really like his short stories all that much. His writing is a little is that, stilted. Is, wait, wait, is that the faint sound of backpedaling I hear? No, 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 no. no. There's <laughs> okay. no backpedaling here. Okay, all right. But I do like the mythos that he created, mm-hmm. and. You know, within the, I play a lot of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft themed board games. I play Arkham Horror. I played. Uh, you you support Shadow. his legacy. You support his estate. It's it's tough. The it estate tough. of a, of a of an avowed hardcore racist. You support. Well, now you know. I feel have you bad not come to grips it. with this? I mean, I mean, you know, you, I think you already knew this, right? This is not news to you, right? Um, when when I first started getting into the board games, see, I got into H.P. Lovecraft Mythos through board gaming. I had not read a single one of his his stories, and I did not know that he was a racist. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of started liking it beforehand, and then when I found out that that he was, I will say that it kind of tempered. It very much did temper my enthusiasm for it. I started mm. questioning about whether it was something I should enjoy, whether Cthulhu was like a character that I should enjoy or that sort of stuff. And it's, you know, I don't really have a good answer for that kind of gray area since he's, well, dead. So the fact that Lovecraft is a documented, well-known racist who probably would not have had coffee with you without maybe looking down on you or, you know, without some discomfort that doesn't change your ability to enjoy his work or your ability to continue to support his work through board games or whatever. Is that, is that the case? Um, it's, it's real tough. I, I actually, I mean, this is a cop out. I don't real have really have an answer because it's been pointed out to me by other people that some of his stories that I just took to be fantastical stories when I initially read them actually have some really racist undertones. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can't really enjoy it once you've had the mirror, like once the mirror has been shattered, you can't really look and see the same reflection that you used to see. Mm-hmm. So uh, long story short, I like the character of Cthulhu, but I don't, you know, I don't like reading his books. I've played the board games, but I haven't bought more of the board games. Oh man, this is weak. This is weak sauce. This is weak. Um, I <laughs> okay. don't know what to say. I all like right, Cthulhu. All right. I I'll, like I'll take you off the hook. I, I'll move on. I'll move on. But I just, I mean, I think that's a good you know, way to bring up like how difficult it can be when we attempt to mix politics with uh, particularly science fiction, which is often political in nature. When we try to mix our, our personal real life politics with our fiction and with, you know, the entertainment content that we enjoy, it can become very tricky because, 
you know, you know, what happens if you find out? What happens if all the Star Wars fans out there find out through some leak, some, you know, because email leaks are happening? I'm not going to I'm not going to say, you know, some scenario. Oh but what if they find out some horrific thing about George Lucas and he and they find out what what if there's like a detailed, you know, when you write stories, you have a story Bible. What if the story Bible comes out and there are all these like horrific things that he's written that are like, you know, insensitive to various groups? I mean, well, I, know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that wouldn't change the Star Wars uh, passion. No, you're absolutely right. And to be fair, George Lucas has already kind of put some racist stuff into uh, the prequels where the Trade Federation was very thinly veiled metaphor for Asian cheapos, you know? So it's already there kind of in the Star Wars mythos. I just think, you know, people overall tend to look the other way because as a whole, he's not the sole creator of it anymore. Okay, so, so, I, so I'm going to say, so I say all that to, to circle back to Star Trek and say this. I really appreciate the sentiment and the thought and this, what I'm about to say probably means we'll never get any of them on the Mars podcast, but I guess that's fine. Look, I, I think stay in your lane. I think if you're going to make a political statement as an individual, be, whether you're an actor or a director, make that statement. You have the right to say it. But to attach it to a franchise, to say this is the view of Star Trek, and we come together as creators and collaborators and makers of Star Trek, and we say you know, this particular political candidate is wrong and you should not vote for this particular candidate. I, I think that's a little out of bounds. And I think, um, you know, as as well-meaning as it is, and I got to tell you, some of the people in this list are, I'm huge fans of a lot of these people. I mean, there's a great, amazing, just well-meaning people. But I just think, how about keep it separate? And maybe if you have a political statement, you know, create a political organization, you know, or join a political organization or make the statement on social media. But when you attach it to a science fiction franchise, what you do is you also risk alienating people who may, for whatever reasons they have, support someone like Trump or, you know, whoever other whatever other candidate you're disagreeing with. You alienate the fans who, you know, now what 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 happens to someone who is, you know, of a Trump voter who is also a hardcore Trekkie. Think about that. It's not, it's not really fair to them, you know? You know, and it's, it's, it's what really struck me about the statement. The second half of the statement was how clearly they, well, they stopped short of saying you must vote for Hillary if you believe in Star Trek at all. But it's kind of what they said, basically. I mean, they didn't say it directly, but that's basically what they said. But they definitely tried to take the piss out of people who are thinking of voting protest votes and voting for third party candidates. They basically were saying, you know, what you're doing, Uh, quote unquote, they said that we have heard people say that they will vote green or libertarian or not at all because the two major candidates are equally flawed. That is both illogical and not and inaccurate. They, they threw some Spockian language in there. Is it ethical on some sense if a franchise comes out and basically says you must vote for this candidate if you are a fan of this franchise? I don't think it's, I don't even think it's about ethics. I think it's about stay in your lane. I think you're an entertainer, whether you're a writer, director, actor, uh, producer, you're in, you're in the entertainment business. And if you want to make political statements there i think there are just too many people invested in the star trek franchise for you to essentially co-opt star trek for a political message look 
I happen to agree with what they're saying. I happen to agree that Star Trek, part of the reason I love Star Trek is that right from day one, it was diverse. It was inclusive. You know, the prime directive, all these things like spoke to just ideals that I agree with. So I agree with the central message of what they're saying. I just don't agree with the context. I think whatever your political views, when you use a very popular and beloved uh, science fiction franchise like this to you know, essentially make a political statement, you risk, not risk, I'm, I'm pretty sure they've alienated some of their hardcore fans. And I just don't think it's fair to them, you know, if someone like, I don't know, LeVar Burton or John Cho, if they have a political opinion and they want to state it on social media or join, you know, join a rally or some group and make that statement, awesome. As a Star Trek fan, we don't have to follow them on social media. We don't have to look into their personal life and like, oh, this is how they think about what's happening with Brexit or whatever. No. But when you attach it to Star Trek, you fundamentally uh, are attempting to change the relationship a fan has with that beloved science fiction franchise. And I, I just think it's not about ethics. It's just it's wrong. It's 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 wrongheaded. And um, I love all you guys who signed the, the letter. Please don't hate us. Well, don't don't hate me. I speak for myself. Uh, but, I, you know, I think um, wrong context. Great message. Wrong context. Speaking of space, we want to move on into the major announcement, the plan announced by Elon Musk of SpaceX, the founder of SpaceX, who he's also the founder of Tesla. And to discuss those plans, the viability, how realistic or unrealistic or just maybe to help us put it in context a bit, we have Laura Forsick, an astrophysicist, a space professional, and currently an analyst at Northern Sky Research. Laura, how are you? I'm great. It's glad to be I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for joining us. And so the Mars podcast is dedicated to science fiction meets technology and science. But anytime a topic uh, on like actually going to Mars comes up, you know, our, our antennas really, you know, go up and, you know, we get excited and we dive deep. But, you know, as an astrophysicist, you're far more qualified than myself to like really kind of help us understand some of the things that Elon Musk got into during his uh, recent presentation. I think it was in New Mexico. At a space conference? It was actually in Guadalajara, Mexico, the International Aeronautical Conference. And it was given last week, actually a week ago today or tomorrow. Um, and it was a fantastic presentation. You know, Elon Musk isn't the best public speaker, so that's <laughs> right. not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the presentation itself of these long-awaited plans. And you were mentioning science fiction. Some people would argue that this bridges science fiction a little bit in the fact that they are very ambitious plans. But, um, you know, others would argue that this is very technologically feasible and it could be done within our lifetimes. And before we dive too deep into what Elon Musk said on stage. Let's uh, just give the listeners kind of a sense of who you are. Now, I know you worked at a NASA center in a couple of capacities based on like, you know, some of the research I did about you. And I mean, just can you just give us a sense of like some of the things you've done kind of, you know, in the past with regard to space? Sure. Well, my background is in astrophysics and planetary science. I did work at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, doing research um, in high energy astrophysics, then switched over to planetary science, where I worked at Kennedy Space Center for a little while. Um, also did some work with the International Space Station. And um, right now I am a space industry analyst at Northern Sky Research. 
Research, which is a consulting firm. And I specialize in especially the um, emerging space. Some people would call it new space. Uh, so my uh, fascination is what especially humans and robotic uh, craft can do together to extend human life beyond our planet. So, I mean, in, in your capacity at Northern Sky, I mean, before we get into Elon, have you done much, I guess, investigation into the Curiosity rover that's currently on Mars? Or do you have any opinions on what's going on with that project? Well, Curiosity launched when I was a grad student. That was fantastic. If any of you were watching that live, that seven minutes of terror, that was breathtaking. Um, I know a lot of people watch that live and I had some friends working on that project and I, I love all the other missions, the spirit and opportunity missions. Viking. There's so many positive stories that come out of NASA's exploration of Mars. Um, and so far we've done it robotically and the plan is eventually to send humans to Mars. NASA has a plan. Elon Musk has a plan. There's a couple of other uh, entities out there that are trying to do something similar. With that, let's just go ahead and dive in. This is, I mean, this was an epic presentation. Uh, Elon Musk teased it for, I think, a couple of weeks before he actually made the pr presentation. And when he finally took this, took to the stage, um, it was something out of a movie. I mean, he was up there alone. There were no props. And behind him was a gigantic image of the planet of Mars, the red. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> The way that it was terraforming as you listen to his talk, as you watch in the background, Mars was slowly becoming Earth-like as catch he continued that. the talk. Yeah, oh we watch it. It's it's beautiful the way they did that. You know, that's bridging on the science fiction a little bit. No one really knows quite how to terraform a planet or if we even should because of planetary protection policies. But really watch that video and you can see in the background, it was just a really nice theatrical touch. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, he's not the I mean, he's clearly brilliant and very smart and driven and he executes pretty well on many of his ideas but he's not the best public speaker so i think yeah it, what was interesting was he laid out his vision for how to get us to mars how to begin to colonize mars and the immediate reaction wasn't you know wasn't the most positive reaction there was a lot of skepticism but i i guess we should go down kind of like bullet points of kind of the big things he covered um I think that he, he mentioned a Raptor engine that would get us there. Yes. Yeah, so Raptor is the engine that he is planning to put on the Interplanetary Transport System, ITS. That is his gigantic, uh, there's 42 engines that are going to be planned on, on, on this rocket. It's a gigantic rocket. Um, and so the Raptor was actually just tested and that was a surprise that they that SpaceX put out um, either right before or during his talk. They released that video of the Raptor test. And, and I am not an engineer. I am a scientist, so I can't get into the details of the Raptor engine for you. But from what I've seen, it looks beautiful. It looks like it performed well. Yeah. And I mean, the video was stunning. I, I'm calling it a mini, a short science fiction film because it's science and it is at this point <laughs> fiction. But it was really well done. I mean, it, it really I mean, it, what the thing I think that got me most excited is before we ever saw the real world tests of uh, Elon Musk's uh, or SpaceX um, rocket reentry, uh, robotic rocket reentry that can like land on the on the platform in the middle of the ocean. Before we saw that in real life, he showed us kind of like a concept animation of it. And here we go again. Like he's starting with this concept animation and sure, a rocket returning to a platform in the middle of the sea 
may, you know, I'm sure that's, you know, a far less difficult proposition, but nevertheless, it, it kind of has that whiff. It get, the, the fact that he's going through the same process, it gives you that whiff of, oh, wait, may, maybe this is really possible. So anyway, so th- the other thing he talked about was the cost. I think he said something in the range of a billion or two billion using conventional methods to get a person to Mars now. And he wants to get that down to 200,000 per person, I think it was, or 500,000. That's correct, yeah, um, 200,000 and then eventually 100,000. And that's where I have pause because realistically, (laughs) I don't know if that is a a goal that can be attained. Um, I called him out on that during the talk and I had several people respond back to me, you know, that's a great goal. We should be pushing for that goal for everyone to be able to afford a trip to Mars. Well, not everyone can afford $100,000 even if that is the price. and. Those of us who can, and and I count myself lucky that maybe if I save up for a long time, I could possibly afford $100,000, $200,000 to Mars. Um, but the fact that it remains that that kind of uh, price point <laughs> is not has not been proven yet. It is nowhere near close to what has been proven. Um, and we can argue that SpaceX has dropped the cost of rocket launches with the Falcon 9 and will continue to um, drop the cost of rocket launches. Um, others can argue that. I don't know if I necessarily agree uh, with the fact that this is unproven technology, inflation. You know, SpaceX has done wonderful things to revolutionize rockets, and the reusability is one of them. Landing in the ocean, landing on a barge in the ocean, landing back at the launch site at Kennedy Space Center, those are great ways to save on costs. But I don't know if it can be brought down quite that much. And so I'm skeptical of that, and I am wanting Elon Musk to prove me wrong. Definitely prove me wrong, and I'll be happy to be proven wrong. But I am skeptical of that price point. Okay, and when well now just to play devil's advocate because and again this is all we're now in the realm of speculation, but just devil's advocate. On some level, this makes me think of the early days of commercial jet travel when only the wealthy could afford to travel, you know, intercontinentally on jets, and then gradually over the course of decades, the prices came down. So, I mean. Is it feasible to maybe look at this in that way that maybe 100,000 or 200 or even 500,000 is maybe that initial price point and that's kind of just where he's starting and maybe he hopes to get it down over time? Yeah, that is, that is the goal and that is a great analogy. I very much hope that's the goal as well, that someday you and I or our children or our grandchildren, hopefully more our children, uh, can afford a trip to space. That is a goal that I am working in this industry to do. That's what I'm dedicating my career in a sense to hope that I can move, that, that Elon Musk and others can move the ball to get to that point where we can all afford to go to space if we want to. However, <laughs> until I actually see it done, I won't actually believe that it's going to happen um, in the time frame that he gives. And the time frame, he even joked, is not his strong suit. SpaceX tends to deliver on their promise eventually. They almost never delivered on their promise on time. Almost everything they do is delayed. And so he even joked during the talk that the time frame that he's giving um, is probably not going to be realistic. Um, and so 
maybe eventually the common person can save up their money and get a trip to Mars. And what is that time frame again? What, like when when is he saying that they want to do their first launch to actually go? They want to send the first ITS rocket up in 2023. And if you look at NASA's plans, uh, what they're doing, they have another rocket system that NASA is developing called the Space Launch System, SLS, with a capsule on top called the Orion. And their plans are more the 2030. Um, and I honestly believe that neither one of those are wow. accurate timeframes. I'm on the skeptical side. I believe that it'll be a little bit longer than that because of funding, technological di- uh, difficulty, um, and just the general lack of consensus as to how we go about this. But I do think eventually somehow humans will get to Mars. I just can't tell you how it's going to play out. And one thing that he got a lot of pushback for, I don't want to say a lot of push, but some pushback for, is when he was asked if he would be on that first rocket, if he would make that initial trip to Mars, he gave what I thought, I mean, at the time, I thought it was a pretty good answer, which was, that he wanted to, you know, that it was a dangerous mission and he wanted to make sure that he's around uh, just in case, you know, if something goes wrong, that the people who take over uh, SpaceX don't simply shift the focus of the company to, let's say, space mining or some other commercial venture as opposed to, you know, you know, keeping their focus on Mars. So I'm curious, like, did you think that was a legitimate excuse? Do, I mean, do you think that kind of like lends heft to his credibility? Like, well, like, how did that play for you? I thought that was a great answer. I thought that him saying that he needed a succession plan for the company was very realistic because that is the way that the world works. He's not going to be, quote unquote, allowed to put himself in harm's way like that unless he has his ducks in the row, in a row. Um, and he might not be the first person to go on his ITS to Mars, but eventually he'll go if it's if it happens in his lifetime, he'll go. He says that he wants to retire on Mars. And that is something he's been saying for a long time. In fact, that's the reason why he started SpaceX. So for ages now, he's had this one singular goal of getting himself to Mars. And I do think he'll do it if he can successfully get his rocket working within his own time a lifetime. And another thing that um, came up, like in the aftermath of his Mars presentation is the idea of the Hyperloop. Now, for those out there who don't know, the Hyperloop is an idea that he proposed a few years ago for a super fast, I guess, vacuum tube-like uh, transportation mechanism that would allow us to, for instance, travel from L.A. to San Francisco. I can't remember. I think it was like 30 minutes, like some incredibly, insanely fast amount of time. And his uh, I mean, basically, he said he's putting it out there as an idea. He gave the plans away for free. And now there are actually a few companies that are very well funded uh, to the tunes of you know tens of millions of dollars that are actually embarking on this project. But he, the difference here is, well, I bring that up because some people uh, immediately compared the Hyperloop idea to this idea as though he were just kind of. I guess, freestyling, like, oh, you know, it would be great to go to Mars. Here's a potential idea. And I, that's not how it played for me because he, he's the head of SpaceX. He's giving a plan and he appears to be like taking responsibility for actually executing this plan. So I, what I wanted to know is like just in general, just, you know, top down, whether it's 20, you know, 2020, 2030s. 
like is does his plan in general seem like in terms of the execution and the the details that you were exposed to does it seem realistic elon musk is brilliant he has all these ideas in his head and his choice is to implement one bit at a time and in his talk at guadalajara he did mention that it is only in the background of spacex's plans his trip his uh his rocket plans to go to Mars are somewhat in the background because of lack of funding. His primary goals right now are to get his Falcon 9 operational. He's working on Falcon 9 Heavy. He's got NASA plans to fly NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. He's still doing NASA cargo to the International Space Station. So SpaceX has a lot on their plate. But he has this goal and he's had it from the beginning. And we've heard talks for years now of what's called Red Dragon, Dragon being the capsule that goes on top of the rocket that carries people. The Dragon um, carries cargo and, and hopefully eventually crew to the International Space Station. And the thought is that the Red Dragon will take humans to Mars and, and cargo to Mars. Um, and so I do believe that the ITS, the trip to Mars, would be a fundamental part of SpaceX's business once they are funded for it. Right now, and I think part of, of Elon Musk's talk was to present the idea and somewhat ask for funding without asking for it. Ah, okay. um, so public-private partnership with NASA or with anyone else who might be able to help him fund his dream to go to Mars, I think that is what this is about. I think that he'll eventually do it with the funds that SpaceX brings in, the profit, the background, um, you know, spare change that they have coming in, but it'll be much slower that way. Well, this makes me wonder about some one other thing. So NASA announced its uh, plans or its interest in getting to Mars in the 2030s um, a few years ago, I believe. And so I'm assuming Elon Musk was aware of that you know, kind of outline. So is that, do you think that means maybe he's not confident that NASA will execute on those aspirations? It's funny that you mentioned that because at one point of his talk, um, I don't know if you know that the ITS was originally named the Mars Colonial Transporter. Oh, wow. And he renamed it recently because he realized that it could get beyond Mars. And that was a point he brought up in his talk. And he suggested some destinations. Um, Enceladus, for example, uh, Europa. He, he threw out some destinations. And the reason why I bring this up is because there have been some talk, NASA administration and Congress with respect to NASA funding, about other destinations for NASA's rocket, the SLS. Um, and so the idea that NASA administration currently has and that Congress currently has is they need to build, build this big heavy lift vehicle, this huge rocket, and get NASA astronauts to uh, beyond low Earth orbit that way, to Mars or to a Mars uh, a Martian moon or to what they call cislunar space, which is the space around the moon. Um, so there's this idea that we could also use the SLS to go to other locations like Europa, for example. What Elon Musk is subtly hinting at in his presentation is that you don't need a separate SLS giant NASA rocket to send humans outside of low Earth orbit. You can use my system. Hmm. And so <laughs> um, I definitely think that Elon Musk had NASA in his mind when he presented his talk and when he presented the ETS because there's – one can argue that there's no real reason if he can get 
ITS operational and safe that NASA needs its own heavy lift rocket. And one thing that I keep bringing up, and this may reveal my vast ignorance with regard to the topic of space, but why isn't the closer moon a more, um, not necessarily for con- uh, colonization and for you know, an attempt to terraform, but just why isn't the moon, since it's so much closer than Mars, why isn't that a more viable target for, uh, you know, a, a non-Earth, you know, body outpost, like before we go to Mars? Oh, this has nothing to do with your ignorance and everything to do with the disagreement and policy. So this is an endless argument that goes back and forth on what destination NASA or humans in general should pursue. Um, the consensus in Europe right now is actually to go send humans to moon. And and some other partners such as the Chinese and the Russians also want to send humans to the moon. Um, and you'll find many people in the United States also arguing that we as NASA or we as um, private commercial industry should send people to the moon before we go off elsewhere, such as Mars or another destination, such as a Martian moon or elsewhere, an asteroid perhaps. Um, and so it's an endless battle. And um, we don't have enough time in this show to get into it. That's a whole separate topic. But it's not your ignorance. It just happens to be the political climate at this time that a quote unquote journey to Mars is what NASA is on as dictated by the current NASA administration. Now, whether this will change in the next NASA administration with the next president, I don't know because Congress right now is on board on board with the journey to Mars, whereas before Congress was on board with the journey to the moon through the Constellation program with President Bush. So <laughs> hmm. who knows what happens in the next presidential administration and the next Congress? You j- time will tell. Okay, and I have two last questions that are kind of uh, the the biggies, the big epic questions. So first of all, you know, it really struck me that he, Elon Musk, actually mentioned Battlestar Galactica in his speech. It was amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean, he talks about artificial intelligence. He he brings up uh, the Terminator when he speaks about that. I mean, clearly, Elon Musk is a big fan of science fiction. And, you know, this is part of why this show exists is because a lot of the ideas in real science and some of the inspiration, in, you know, in technology, sometimes it's uh, born from, you know, a, a young scientist or programmer who is a fan of a particular science fiction work. And so this idea of Battlestar Galactica and having kind of like a, a massive uh, spacecraft that is multi-generational designed to, you know, basically you have a target, but you know that maybe generation one won't get there. Maybe it'll be the third or fourth or, you know, the great, great grandson of someone who started on that ship. I mean, that seemed to be what he was indicating or hinting at. Do you think, I mean, just in general terms, does that sound like a viable way to get us to, you know, far off planets? Like, let's say, um, what's the planet they just, um, we, we just talked about this, uh, gosh. The Proxima B. Uh, Proxima B, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, to get us to, play, to someplace like Proxima B, which I think it's... Uh, like 10,000 Earth years, something like that would take us. It's certainly it's certainly a possibility. And I know that he has that long term thinking in his head or else he wouldn't have mentioned Battlestar Galactica. And I do love that he brings up science fiction. He's just as much a geek as all of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is his eventual plan is to have a colony of millions of people living on Mars. And his plan is to take it people hundreds at a time on his ITS rocket. Um, And so he has big ambitious goals to not just take one or two or three rich tourists to Mars, but to take 
hordes of people and set up an entire civilization there. And that's not just a civilization of the elite. That's a civilization of all the people that you can think of that would make up a colony. Or if you don't like the word colony, choose another similar word that doesn't have the kind of background that that word has. Um, But the idea is to extend human life from Earth, from low Earth orbit, to another planet and make us a multi-planet species. That's why he named his rocket Interplanetary Transport System. It all stems with this idea of humans living on another world. Yeah, and then that is a perfect lead into my final question, which is the big one. Now you have been, this has been your vocation, your focus for much, most of your professional life. This is this is what you do. This is what you think about all all the time. Space, space travel, like how, you know, the logistics around it, the science around it. So my question to you is like the idea that we're, you know, in this fragile state, you know, on on the planet Earth and, you know, it could be a pandemic, a uh, nuclear war, uh like a meteor that, you know, we st- you know, because we still even all all these movies come out uh showing us warding off you know giant asteroids from my understanding we still don't really have the ability to ward off a massive asteroid we can't always detect when one might be incoming so my question to you is this idea of making us a multi-planet species seems to be at the heart at the root of where Elon Musk is coming from with all this do you think that's where we should be focused on? I mean, do you think that he has, whether he his ideas sound maybe outlandish or too ambitious or his timeline is too short? I mean, is he on the right track? Is this, I mean, is this a very, is this an emergency situation? Is he on the right track in terms of the urgency with which he's you know, proposing all of this. Well, I don't know if that he has that urgency in mind, considering we're talking about decades or maybe even a century or two. But I do believe he's on the right track. We have seen in Earth history that if we don't take our planet seriously, if we don't pay attention to the things that happen, such as meteorite strikes, uh, volcanic eruption, um, anything that could really happen, even just the natural progression of climate on Earth or human-made progression of climate on Earth, you know, how things can change to be a negative towards human beings living here. Um, It's just a very good idea to diversify no matter what it is that you're doing. And diversifying the species on multiple planetary bodies is just a great way to continue the human race. Now, I'm not talking about something that needs to be, you know, urgent, urgent. We don't need to stop what NASA is doing right now and dedicate, you know, all of NASA's budget to this problem. But it is something that actually NASA is taking seriously. The U.S. government is taking seriously as a whole. Other governments have been doing things to help mitigate against any kind of disasters or protect against disasters called planetary defense. Um, And so this is definitely something that we should be thinking about. And the great thing about Elon Musk doing it is that he's a private individual putting his own money and his own company on the line to focus human humanity forward. So we don't even necessarily need to have the discussion about whether or not it should be the government's business to do this, because this is a private individual doing something that he believes in. Actually, I lied. I have one last question. And this one's <laughs> a little bit more personal. Uh, it's 2023. Uh, everything has come together. Elon Musk has delivered on his promise. Somehow he's remained on schedule and they're preparing for launch or they're preparing, you know, for the imminent launch in 2023. And lo and behold, Laura Forsick has been gifted a $200,000 ticket to be on that first trip. Do you take it? Oh, I would bank <laughs> that money and go on the second one. <laughs> 
<laughs> not that it's necessarily any safer on the second trip, right, right. but I, I, I would be happy to watch the first one on the ground and then go up. And only if it's a, a two-way trip, I don't know if I'd stay there, but um, I would happily go to Mars and back on Elon Musk's ETS. Awesome. Okay, well, Laura, I really appreciate you joining us. Again, this is Laura Forsick, a research analyst or an analyst at Northern Sky Research. Um, do you have any website or any kind of social media presence you want to give out? Uh, sure, I do have a blog, although I haven't updated it in a while. Maybe this will encourage me to do so. It's Laura's Space on Space dot blogspot dot com. So Laura's Space on Space dot blogspot dot com. And if you can't find it, just look me up on Twitter, Lara Forsick, if you know how to spell it. <laughs> yeah, and we'll just uh listeners will have the correct spelling of her name on our show notes. Uh, thanks again, Laura. I really appreciate it. And and just to answer the same question I asked you, I think I might. It's a fifty fifty. If if I got that two hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollar grant, I might actually take the flight because I love Earth. I love the greenery. I love all the things that are happening here. But I mean, this this is I mean, this is history. This, it could be awesome. And it could Absolutely. be a short trip. <laughs> well, I hope you and I both end up on Mars someday together. That would be awesome. Thanks again, Laura. I really appreciate it. You take care. Thanks for having me on. And with that, we will call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And visit us on the internet at twitter.com slash marsmagazine or at marsmagazine.com. My name is Dario Strange with Big Song. And we will see you in the future.